I'm not going to preach the same message I preached two weeks ago, but I'm going to preach on the same passage. Last time we looked at John chapter 2, verses 11, uh, 1 through 11. And of course, this is a passage that talks about Jesus turning the water into wine, and many people like to use this as an excuse for drinking alcoholic beverages. And I do not believe, nor does the Bible consistently agree with the fact that Jesus would have turned this water into alcoholic beverage. I believe it was new wine, it was grape juice, and uh, we're going to look at uh, this passage in the light of some of the other things that are here that we didn't get to cover when we talked about uh, this, uh, the Bible use of the word wine two weeks ago. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is enough. Remember, uh, some of you remember, and some of you are not old enough. Some of you weren't even uh, running around in diapers yet. But you remember back in the 1970s. How many of you remember the 1970s? We've got enough uh, older folks here that know the 1970s. Um, And uh, 1970 was when we got married. So that's been 45 years ago. And uh, then the years after that, remember President Carter Uh, He was the president then. He warned everybody about the world's supplies of oil and natural gas were running out. And uh, now, 45 years later, more gas and oil has been discovered than ever before. And rather than running out of oil, the global oil supplies grew some 40% since Carter's dire warnings. Now, in light of that, you would say, well, maybe some of you should sell your economy cars and get a muscle car, you know. Uh, get you something that uh, eats a little gas, uh, because it's cheap stuff now, right? Well, uh, you might not think so, but I think uh, good use of your money is okay. Uh, But while our earth's resources may not actually be depleted, uh, there are many times in our life we find that there's simply not enough of something that we really need. You know, sometimes there's not enough money for all the month. Uh, And sometimes there's not enough time for all the tasks, the jobs that need to be done. Sometimes there's not enough strength for a stretch you have to walk. Sometimes you're not tough enough for the tests of life that you face. Sometimes there's just not enough of what you need. And that was the case at the marriage celebration in this little obscure place called Cana of Galilee some uh, 2,000 years ago. The wine for all the guests had run out, which in that day was a serious shame to the host families and no small problem in the culture where hospitality was virtually a legal matter. You had to provide for your guests and there simply wasn't enough wine uh, at this uh, uh, wedding celebration. Now, after our recent John 3.16 banquet, I heard some discussion about how many leftovers we had. By the way, I think we've got some leftovers today from the John 3.16 banquet. If you didn't get any of that good ham, it's going to be on the table today, all right? Uh, There's going to be some of that uh, potato casserole that we had that, you know, we talked about, you know, the leftovers. And of course, we we did enjoy many of those leftovers the next noon fellowship day, but uh, 
Someone recalled that there was a year when we had the John 3.16 banquet when they ran out of food. Um, they had uh, only prepared enough for the exact number who had signed up, and more people came than they uh, counted on, and so they ran out. And I heard someone also comment that they would rather have too much than not enough. And you might as well know that if my wife has anything to do with it, that's going to be the case. She always prepares plenty. You know, I didn't get this girlish figure by accident. (laughs) But, you know, whatever mistakes this particular wedding couple had made in their food preparations, they unknowingly made up for it in their invitations. You see, they invited Jesus to their marriage celebration. And Jesus is always enough, even when there is not enough. Now, this miracle in which Jesus changed the water into wine marks the beginning of his public ministry. And for those of you that are visiting this morning, we're going through the book of John. We go verse by verse, and we started in January in John chapter 1, and we're already here uh, speeding along in chapter 2. And, uh, but... uh, We go verse by verse, and whatever comes up, that's what we talk about. But here we find the beginning of Jesus' ministry, even in this week when we think about the end of his ministry here on earth, in his death and his burial and his resurrection, here's the beginning. By the way, that resurrection uh, was a miracle. That was a miracle. Uh, Jesus being raised from the dead. Now here's the first miracle that he performed here on earth. And we've already discussed that Jesus did not turn the water into alcoholic wine. So today we want to look at some other great truths that we find here in this passage. In the end, the result of this miracle was a greater belief in Jesus on the part of his disciples. They saw the glory of him as much as they saw the glory of what he had done. Now this is what we must take away from this text as well. We must take that away. It is Jesus that we need the most. Regardless of what else you might need in life, you need Jesus most of all. Now, consider what we see in him as we look over this wonderful story. For one thing, we see Jesus is genuine enough to attend a marriage. He's genuine enough to attend a marriage. In John chapter 1, it opened up with a remarkable spiritual language describing Jesus as the Word. And He was in the beginning with God, and He was nothing less than God Himself. In John chapter 1, it tells us of the eternal identity of Jesus. But John chapter 2 opens up with this earthly ministry of Jesus, and He that had existed eternally with God became flesh and dwelt among us. He's a real person. He was a real person. And you see just how much of a genuine person he was when you see him begin his public ministry, not standing on the steps of the temple, but sitting at the table as a guest at a local wedding celebration. I want you to picture the genuine Jesus as a guest at this wedding celebration. Consider how it points to two things. Number one, the reality of his life. The reality of his life. He was a real life man who lived in a real community with a real family and real friends. And we're reminded of this when chapter 2 begins with the words, And the third day there was a marriage in the Canaan, uh, Canaan of Galilee. Now Jewish weddings had three stages. 
First of all, there was the betrothal. Uh, which took place at least a year before the, uh, the wedding celebration. And this could not be broken except by divorce. And uh, uh, this is the example that God gives to us in the scriptures. And I believe this is a very important teaching concerning that idea of divorce. We're not going to get into that this morning. But when Joseph first learned that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, they were betrothed. And so he sought to divorce her for what he thought was immorality. Now, the second phase was the procession. Now, this wasn't in a church or a temple or a synagogue or anything that just kind of came down the little aisle there. Uh, This was where the groom and his friends would uh, go from the bride's house and joyously lead her and her friends back to his house. And then the third stage, which is described here in our text, was the wedding feast. This was something that lasted as long as a week. Uh, when was the last wedding reception that took a week <laughs> that you attended? You see, this is a major social event in this community. And we learned that his mother was there and that he and his disciples had also been invited. And this marriage was more than just a 30-minute ceremony followed by a brief reception with some barely edible finger foods. A marriage in that day required an all-out celebration that would have lasted as much as seven days. And in the middle of that celebration, the folks are talking and they're enjoying themselves. They're eating and they're drinking and children are running around, no doubt, and playing. And the joy of life is going on. And then there's Jesus right there in the middle of it. Now, John the Baptist had been an outsider. He had lived in the desert. He had been preaching a hard-fisted sermons and, and proclaiming the need for repentance. But here we find Jesus was different. As one commentator put it, he comes eating and drinking. He moves freely amongst men as one of them. And the reality of the life of Jesus is that he did not come to stand afar off from us and in superiority or hyper-spirituality. No, he joins us in all of life in common human things, just like a wedding reception. And when you consider the reality of his life, it points us secondly to the reach of his life. The reach of his life. Later in this chapter, we will find the Lord Jesus visiting the temple in Jerusalem. But more often than not, you'll find him out in the streets instead of in the sanctuary. His death would reach into the Holy of Holies and it would rip the veil in two. But his life would reach into every part of human existence, touching all sorts of people from a widowed mother in a funeral procession to a newlywed couple in a wedding celebration, someone put it this way, that tells me that Jesus loves ordinary people like us and is involved in the everyday issues of our lives. Here is the Lord of glory taking care of the refreshments at a party. Jesus Christ wants to be with you on Monday morning at the office just as much as he wants to be with you on Sunday morning in the church. Jesus is not a God who can worship, you can only worship once a week or a couple of times a year, should I add. Jesus is not one who just lives at church and knows nothing about the grocery store or the ball field or the doctor's office. Jesus is a Lord who is a Lord you live with day in and day out. 
He must be real. He must be relevant at your family's dinner table as he is in the church communion table. His life must reach and touch every part of your life, for that is how he lived in this world. And that's how he works in the lives of his people still today. Now, if you've ever looked at the ancient paintings and depictions of Jesus, you will notice that almost always there's some kind of a halo or glow around his head. If you had been there that day, there wouldn't have been any halo or glow around his head. This is just the artist's way of trying to tell you, this one is Jesus, you know. Kind of telling them apart from the rest. But you know what? The only thing on the head of the human Jesus would have been dark, coarse hair of a young Jewish man, and it wouldn't have been long, feminine looking either. He would have looked like the rest of the men at the celebration. He was genuine enough to attend a marriage and he was genuine enough to enter into the everyday aspects of your life and my life. And as we look further into this passage, we find not only that Jesus is genuine to attend a marriage, but we also see that Jesus is gracious enough to accommodate a mother. Jesus is gracious enough to accommodate a mother. Now this marriage celebration, while it's still going on, there was a not-so-minor crisis that arose. Here in verse 3, it says they wanted wine. They have no wine. It literally means they, they ran out. Now, as I said before, this was not merely something you would come out and apologize for. Well, I'm sorry, folks, we just ran out of uh, uh, wine. Um, I guess you just have to go thirsty. No, this isn't something like that. The guests had been invited. They'd been here for this celebration for the whole week now. And to fail to provide this was to do something that was not was embarrassing, but it was also disgraceful. It was a kind of thing that would have marked this young married couple and their families permanently for the rest of their lives. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have understood the gravity of this more than we do probably, which is probably why she brought it to the attention of her, her son, Jesus. And this led to a very interesting exchange between the Lord Jesus and his mother, one that ultimately points to how gracious Jesus really can be. Notice with me, first of all, the point of Mary's conversation with Jesus. Verse 3 records that Mary simply said to Jesus, they have no wine. Apparently, though, this was more than just information. You know how mothers can say something that's just more than information? Well, it appears that, uh, you know, she hoped he would do something about it. And notice carefully his response. Jesus, in verse 4, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now that title, woman, there is not as harsh as it comes across in our English language. It was a respectful title. Something like, uh, you know what a good southerner would say, ma'am? You know, that's what a, a southerner would say. And even if you were going to be polite to someone, you'd say, ma'am. But uh, he says, what he says after this is not quite as clear. He says, what have I to do with thee? Now, that's rendered several different ways in various English translations, commentators and scholars. They're all divided about that. But this same expression appears both in the Old Testament and the New Testament in other places. 
And it's always pointing to a disagreement or a difference between the person speaking and the person addressed. Jesus said, mine hour is not yet come. His hour always seems to point to the hour of the cross. To the time when he would do his greatest work as Messiah. And with all that being said, in this conversation between Jesus and his mother, I think we hear him saying something like, Ma'am, what does this lack of wine have to do with me? This is not why I have come. This is not what I'm here to do. Jesus had principally come, and primarily come, to die on the cross for the sins of humanity, not just to fill wine buckets at weddings. And yet, what you find in this story is that Jesus did go ahead and fill these water pots or these wine pots. Why? He was graciously accommodating his mother and, he, and this married couple. Now, isn't that what you t- uh, we too find in Jesus? Jesus doesn't really exist to meet every little uh, multiple need of every day's, uh, day, day life. And yet, you know what he does? Jesus came ultimately to pay for my sins, to pardon me from my guilt, to save me from hell. And yet I often find that when I say to him, Lord, I have need of this that he provides. You know, little things and big things are important in life, aren't they? You might think, well, it's just a little thing uh, that this happens to me or that happens to me. Uh, we were on our vacation, and we were traveling from one city back to the uh, home of uh, uh, my wife's sister, where we were staying. And we were on kind of a busy four-lane highway. Uh, it was, uh, and all of a sudden, I saw this uh, uh, gray Taurus come up beside me. And he zoomed in in front of me, and then he zoomed in around him. I thought, what in the world is he doing? And then I saw in my rearview mirror flashing lights. I said, ah, he's after him. You know? And so here we are, right in the middle of a pursuit. Here comes the the officer. He comes around and he zigzags in. The guy, he's off in a cloud of dust. He's on going down the road. You know, once here comes another one. You know, that's no big deal, is it? I mean, it's going to be a big deal for that guy that they were pursuing. Hopefully they caught him. But it could have been a big deal for us. But I think, you know, we're thankful for the Lord's protection. This guy could have been crazier than he was. He could have sideswiped us. He could have done anything. You know, anything could have happened. But this seems like a little thing, but it becomes a big thing, doesn't it? I've been in pursuits with uh, officers as a law enforcement chaplain. I've been in pursuits where they didn't end up good. And so I thought as that kind of went past me, you know, that could have turned out a different way. But I'm thankful the Lord was with us and protected us. But you know, that's how life is. is. Maybe there's something in your life that just seems like a little thing, but you know, That need was meant. It was a temporal. It was a personal need. Do you believe the Lord is interested in your everyday life in everything you do? I believe that's the point of Mary's conversation with Jesus. But don't you also notice the power of Mary's confidence in Jesus? 
Jesus does not say that he's going to do anything about the wine shortage, but Mary knows that he can. And she apparently believed that he would. I want you to notice verse 5. It says there, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, first of all, this might be the greatest piece of advice that anyone has ever given in the name of Jesus. You think, well, that just doesn't seem like very much there again. Whatever he does or he says to do, do it. That's good advice for you and me. Whatever the Lord Jesus says to do, do it. Are you doing it? Those of us who wish to see a miracle working power of Jesus in our life would do well to heed Mary's advice and share her confidence in Jesus. She was confident in the leadership of Jesus. She knew that if he spoke to the servants, he gave them some instructions, it would be the right thing to do. She was also confident in the lordship of Jesus. She knew that if anyone there could do anything about this, it was him. And so, though this was his first miracle, recorded anyway, as John tells us here in his, this text, Mary knew from his conception that Jesus was himself a miracle. She recognized he was more than just a carpenter. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the Lord of all. She didn't know just what he'd do, but he knew, she knew that he could do what no one else could do. Which leads us to a third thing we see in this story. And we see not only that Jesus is genuine enough to attend a marriage, Jesus is gracious enough to accommodate a mother. But notice with me also, thirdly, that Jesus is enough, Jesus is God enough to accomplish a miracle. Now, don't get me in wrong here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus is God. He's not sort of God. He is God. He can't get any more or less God than he already is. But we certainly see his deity on display in this scripture. So the wine has run out and Mary has brought in it to the attention of the Lord Jesus. And though his mission as Messiah concerns greater things than this, we find him graciously intervening in this little domestic drama. Just as he was the only one who could climb Golgotha's hill, and offer his life as the Lamb of God. Likewise, only he could turn the lack of wine into gallons of the finest wine ever tasted. Only Jesus was human enough to attend this marriage, and same time divine enough to save it from disaster and disgrace. And with that in mind, look at this text once again, and notice with me, first of all, the record of this miracle. The miracle, as John records it, is this. Jesus turned water into wine. Verse 9 says, And when the ruler of the feast had tasted that the water that was made wine, how and when exactly Jesus did this is not really clear. The text tells us that there were six stone water pots nearby that the Jews would use to make uh, sure their, uh, wa- they were washed up properly according to the strict standards of their religion. These pots were big enough to hold together a total of 100 to 150 gallons. And Jesus instructed the servants to fill them with water, which they did, and it says, to the brim. Then Jesus says, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. You know, there's speculation. When did this exactly turn? Did it turn 
at that point when they filled it up? Or did it turn when the uh, governor of the feast lifted the cup to his mouth? I don't think it makes a lot of difference. Fact is, Jesus turned the water into wine. Either way, somewhere, whether in the pots or in the well, the water was miraculously turned into wine. And yet we're not told when and we don't know exactly how, other than the fact that Jesus performed a miracle. The same God who puts the juice in a billion grapes or a million vines has no problem filling six water pots. The record of this miracle seems so amazing to us, doesn't it? And it is. But for Jesus, it was no stretch, no challenge, no difficulty. Remember back in verse or chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That means He was here when this whole world was created. He was Creator. And so he could turn this, these little uh, pots, 100 and 150 gallons of, of water into wine. That would be no big deal for him. He accomplished this with nothing more than his will. From what the text records, this record of this miracle, but John also wants us to see further the result of the miracle The result of the miracle actually is twofold. The primary and most important result is that John notes it in verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. The word translated miracles there is the word for sign. This is John's word for the miraculous works of Jesus. They were signs that pointed to the one performing them. The result of this miracle was not for the disciples to believe that it's possible for water to become wine. No, it was for them to see more fully who Jesus was. And this is the real result of this miracle. It pointed these men to Jesus. And as we read this account, more than we need to marvel and be surprised and wonder at the thought of water becoming wine, we ought to worship him who first of all and second of all would do such a thing. People will sometimes say, well, you know, I need a miracle. Boy, this would be a good day for a miracle. Ever thought that? Well, things are going rough. Things are going difficult. I sure could use a miracle today. Well, truthfully, what you need more than a single miracle is the Savior who performed all miracles. You need to believe upon Him even more than you need to believe in what He can do. There's another result from this miracle that we find in this story. The governor of the feast who was charged with overseeing the festivities did not know what had happened or where the wine had come from that the servants had served him, and yet he was more than... He said more than he realized when he testified in verse 10 that this was the best wine he'd ever tasted. Now, specifically, he said to the groom, usually they serve the best wine first, and then when people have enjoyed that, then the worst wine comes out. But you folks, you've saved the best to last. Before we leave this marriage celebration and the scene of this first miracle, think about what this fellow said for a moment. Isn't that really the story of what Jesus offers in the gospel as opposed to what the devil offers in this world? 
Sin offers you the best wine now, and then the bitter wine will follow. The world offers you pleasure and fun and and wonderful things and and stuff, but then comes the payment, and then comes the the hangover. Then comes the, the result of that pleasure and that fun. That's what the world offers. Sin is sweet to the taste at first, but the cup that comes later will make you sick. Jesus, on the other hand, in the gospel, turns up the bitter cup first and he dies on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. But he drinks the bitter cup knowing that a better cup is coming on the other side of the empty tomb. Likewise, he calls us to drink that cup with him and follow him in his life, denying ourselves, struggling against sin, maybe suffering in this mortal body. But he promises that beyond this life and the bitter cup that we may be experiencing now, someday we're going to sit down at his table and we're going to eat and drink with him in a day where all things are new and nothing ever runs out. For now, even in this life, the heavy loads and the empty pots, you know what? Jesus is enough. Even now, he's enough when there is not enough. And so as we conclude, I want to remind you again of the purpose of John's writing found back in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And the result of this miracle is that his disciples, the five men probably from chapter 1 that we talked about, they believed in him. They had already believed, but now for for John, faith isn't just a one-time-and-you're-done sort of thing. You believe in Christ at the moment of salvation, but you go on believing more and more as you grow in the Lord. Notice also in verse 11, this beginning of the miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. He showed that he is the Son of God. The miracle also reveals Jesus as the Creator. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. Chapter 1, verse 3. And just as he transformed the water into wine, he can also transform sinners into saints. And he transformed the deadness of religious ritualism into a new wine of a relationship with him. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Jesus has the power to change your heart. The miracle also emphasized the abundant provision of Christ for all of our needs. The wine had run out and there was no way to get more supply. Save the the groom a social disaster there, but it, it's when we come to the end of ourselves that the Lord displays his power. It was when there was no way to feed the hungry multitude that the Lord provided enough bread to satisfy everyone's need, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. It was Paul's weakness that he came to know the sufficiency of, of the Lord's power, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. 
If we think we're rich and we have nothing, we'll not, we will not experience the Lord's sufficiency. We only, when we recognize that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, that we recognize what he's done for us. He came to this earth born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life and became the spotless Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He died on Calvary's cross to pay our sin penalty. He was buried and then he rose again to demonstrate his power over sin and death and hell. He made the great provision of eternal life for us, and that is what we celebrate today. He lives, he lives, I serve a risen Savior. He's the great provider. And I trust we see his glory and we believe upon him today as we never have before. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, Jesus is enough. He's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven.